All right, so last week, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we uh, looked at the uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the calling of the first disciples, and we, we uh, talked about uh, Lilo, right? That, uh, that the uh, basic message of the Gospel is Lilo. But Lilo is gibberish. What, is, what does Lilo mean? Does anybody remind me what Lilo means? Live in and live out, right. So that is our mission statement, that we help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we, we saw last week as Jesus takes the gospel into the world that we need to live in the good news of Jesus by making the good news of Jesus our core identity. And then as we saw the response of the first disciples to Jesus' call upon their lives, dropping their nets, making Jesus first in their lives, that we also uh, live out the good news of Jesus Christ by making it our fundamental purpose. And so uh, we have seen that living in and living out the good news is the, the, the kind of the mission that drives the, the book of Mark, and it is the mission that we are here about at Renew EPC. This week, Jesus' ministry advances. He goes into the city of Capernaum, he goes into the synagogue, and he begins his, his teaching ministry. And uh, the issue that, that we are going to be dealing with today is, is the issue of authority, the authority that Jesus brings and the good news of his authority. So uh, to kind of make that personal, my first uh, job after college was I, I worked as a mechanical engineer uh, in a, uh, a local firm, and there were, uh, in my opinion, uh, as the newest person there, w- way too many bosses. Uh, basically, everybody was a boss to me on my, my first day at work. Everybody had seniority over me, and everybody was my boss. And having that many bosses meant that I had a lot of people telling me what to do and, and expecting me to get it done. And sometimes uh, I would have myself on two or three different projects with two or three different bosses, and uh, they'd all want it done, all want my work done right away. And so I'd be at my, at my cubicle, that's what it was, a cubicle, working on uh, one of these projects, and in, in, it, inevitably one of the bosses of the project I wasn't working on would come over at that time and ask if I was working on their project, and then I would have to say, have to say no. And sometimes you get in some trouble, right? If you find yourself working on the project and the boss comes by and they says, well, that's, that's not what I want you working on. Well, you need to be working on this other thing. And so I had to figure out really quickly how to cover for myself in those situations. And you know what is the best solution to that problem? It's called the org chart. The org chart. Every, every business has Everybody on the org chart, and of course I was at the very bottom of the org chart. There's no question where I was. But the org chart also listed all of my bosses. And here was the thing that I learned. You were uh, always in trouble if you were doing work for a boss underneath the highest boss on the org chart. So you always prioritized the highest boss on the org chart. And things generally went better. Because if somebody came to me that was a boss a little bit lower down and I said, oh, I'm not working on that right now because I'm working on so-and-so's, they also knew the org chart. They said, well, that's the right person to be working for right now. So you never did it in the reverse. You never chose the person lower on the org chart to prioritize. You always worked for the person at the highest part of the org chart, right? 
That made a happy life at work. And I think that there is a, a need for all of us today to relearn the org chart of the world that we're living in. Because I think a lot of us are living, scrambling around, trying to please different authorities or trying to fulfill the demands of different authorities in this world. We're running ragged. We're getting beat up. And I think it is time for us to sort out the confusion and understand who is at the top of the org chart. I mean, our, our world today has a lot of people that are screaming at us that, that we are the authority and you need to do what we say you need to do. Uh, this week on Facebook, somebody is running a campaign saying, if you don't share this post right now, you're not a good American, you're not a good Christian, you're not a good Republican, you're not a good Democrat, you don't love uh, this race of people or whatever. And we're being told all of the time with authority that we need to be doing this. So there is a lot of anger. But then we also are living in a world where we're like, where is the authority to get anything done, right? We look around and just things seem to be spiraling out of control. Things seem to be going from bad to worse. And nobody seems to have enough authority to actually fix anything. And so the older that we get, that, that, uh, that naivete about, you know, I, I can fix this world or I can be part of a cause that will change the world, slowly kind of falls. And we just have this disillusionment that we're just trying to keep this, this world from really falling apart. But a lot of us have long since lost hope of things getting better, Right? And so I think if you look at our culture today, underneath so much of this authority crisis is hopelessness, is hopelessness. I don't know that anything is going to get fixed. I don't know if anyone has the authority to fix it. I don't know if anyone is able to fix it. I don't like the people who are in charge. And underneath all of that with authority is is the, the question, what is truth? What, what can we believe is true? I have, I have a special sympathy for, for the teenagers in the room who are being communicated all different kinds of truth statements. And how do you figure out which one of these are really true? So there is a crisis of authority. And this week, the good news from the Gospel of Mark is that the one who has authority has come, and he still has all of the authority. But let me make it more personal. We, we come into this world battered with these different authorities trying to take charge of us. But we also probably come into this room recognizing that, that pieces of this world have power over us. Pieces of this world have power over us. They have power over us either in, in, in addictions. They have power over us perhaps in the, in the pursuit of pleasing man or pleasing people, uh, being, being popular or being liked. They have uh, the power over us of making us feel that we need to believe or act or do something or we're going to be canceled. That's my, kind of the word that we're all afraid of right now, Right? 
What has power over you? Some of you may be experiencing the power of a disease over you. You just, you, you never feel well. You never feel healthy. You feel the disease draining you. We, we need to recognize that things are trying to take power over us, and many of us are under the power of, of all sorts of things. In the first century, the world that Jesus uh, came into there were religious and cultural authorities, there were spiritual powers, and there were sicknesses that were oppressing the common person, and those are the, the, the kinds of things that Jesus deals with in our passage. These different powers had an oppressive strength on the world of that day, and we deal with them still today. But Mark wants to show that the one who has authority has come And he has come to set free those who feel oppressed by the powers of their world. And that is the good news that still applies to us today. Jesus came to deliver us from these powers by establishing that he has authority above all. So we're going to go through this passage, and we're going to look at these three domains where Christ has all authority. And we're going to recognize as we go through all of these domains that whatever you may be struggling with that has power over you or whatever crisis of authority you may be in, Jesus has come to reorganize your org chart to give you peace and to give you hope and to give you the promise that things will be okay for you. So let's look at these three domains where Christ has all authority. First of all, he has all authority to declare truth. He has all authority to declare truth. And so Jesus uh, comes into uh, a synagogue, which is uh, kind of the the pre-Jesus version of church, but a group of people uh, would come together and they would hear uh, a a teaching of the the word and uh, sing Amazing Grace, right? It's an old song. No, it's not that old. Uh, but they would, they would sing, they would, they would hear a word from somebody who was a teacher of the, the law, and then they would go about their, their business. And Jesus comes in to, to the synagogue, a synagogue in Capernaum, which is in the north end of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and he begins to teach. And Mark doesn't tell us a thing that Jesus says, just says that Jesus was teaching. But immediately, the people who were in their pews recognized that his teaching was dramatically different than the teaching that they had heard from everyone else. So there was something about Jesus' teaching that was different. Look with me at verse 22. Verse 22 uh, says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So he's being contrasted with the scribes or the teachers of the law. Now, how did the scribes or the teachers of the law teach? Well, their authority was a derived authority. And so when they would get up in front of their congregation, they would say, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this. And so they would communicate through name-dropping through so-and-sos, <laughs> of, of, of other teachers, other interpreters of the Scriptures. And they would eventually say, and that's what all of the teachers that, that I read say the Torah means. 
And so you would have at the end of, of their talk, you know, 10, 12 different authorities that are speaking and saying this is what uh, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, means. It, it's very similar to um, academic writing. So, so actually this, this week, uh, I get to graduate with my, my Ph.D., and my Ph.D. required me to write this book about a, a topic in the Bible, but nobody really cares what I say about that topic in the Bible. You want to know why? Because I had to have at the back end of everything I said about 1,000 footnotes and 30 pages of bibliography, because they don't really care what Mr. Nathan says. They want to know who so-and-so is that says what you think. And then you can say this little bit that no one else has said, <laughs> and, and they'll say, okay, enough so-and-sos are there that you can probably stand on that little piece of information all on, yourself, all on your own. But that's how authority works, is a bunch of so-and-sos trying to share their opinions. But you might, not be, you, you might recognize that as, as so-and-sos share their thoughts, there's a lot of confusion. Not every so-and-so says the same thing, Right? And so when it came to what does the word mean, all of these so-and-sos eventually made the scriptures an incredible burden to try and understand and try and obey. Because the the common person would say, well, I need to obey all the so-and-sos because I don't want to be wrong if one of them is right. And that made the word an extra heavy yoke for these people to bear. And then Jesus comes in and he teaches Differently, he says, he teaches as one who has authority. But let's just listen to one of the, the, the statements Jesus makes when he does teach, when Mark records his teaching. He says in Mark 3, 28, this is how he teaches. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. What do, what do you notice about the way Jesus teaches that is different than the way that the teachers of the law and the scribes taught? He says, truly, I say to you, where's all the so-and-sos? He's the so-and-so. The only so-and-so that matters is himself. Now, when he says the word truly, he's translating the word amen, which is usually the word that, that somebody says at the end of what they teach after it's evident that they are teaching something that is true. But Jesus starts his statement by saying, this is truth, and here's what it is. And why is it truth? Because I said it. That's a completely different kind of teaching. Look at Matthew 5.27. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when he quotes, You shall not commit adultery, what's he quoting? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Word of God. And then he is saying, I say to you, it means also this. So his I, I say, he is equating with God's Word says. That is a dramatic claim to authority. Jesus is saying, my I say is equivalent with the authority of Scripture. He is saying that truth is defined by these words, I say. That is dramatic authority, and that is authority completely different 
than the authority of any of the teachers of the law. So when we recognize that Jesus teaches primarily to reveal his authority, and what Mark wants us to recognize is that the teaching of Jesus is a teaching that communicates that Jesus has the authority to speak God's word. We have to recognize that Jesus, in his teaching, is communicating who he is. Who speaks God's word? God. So Jesus is is declaring his teaching is God's teaching. He is God in front of people. That is what is being expressed with his teaching, and that is why it is so startling and astonishing that he is teaching with that sort of authority. And so when we recognize that Jesus is making that kind of authority claim with his teaching, we come into what is uh, called in, in philosophy a trilemma. A trilemma means that we have three possible solutions to, what, to who Jesus is based on the authority of his teaching. So uh, a, a theologian named John Duncan articulates it this way. He says, Christ was either one deceived, uh, Christ either one deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or two He was himself deluded and self-deceived. Or three, he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. You see, when Jesus declares what he is speaking is the word of God, we have only three choices. We can say he's lying. He's deceiving people. Second, he's a lunatic. He's self-deceived. And if those two options aren't available to us, then the only other option is he is Lord. He is speaking the truth because he is the Lord. This is a very important understanding of the teaching of Jesus because we will go out into the world and you will hear people say, I think Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good moral teacher. But the number one thing that Jesus taught, about, taught was, I am the speaker of of the word of God. I am am speaking divine truth. His teaching was a claim to divinity. And that's the very thing that the world does not want to accept. So the whole idea that Jesus is just a good moral teacher is not available when we really pay attention to how and what he teaches. Now there's an important application for us today. Because Jesus has come to set aside all of the confusion of all of these competing authorities. And yet today, there is still a great deal of confusion, right? And there is still a, a, a sense of the question about a lot of things that Jesus spoke on with the words, what is truth? What is truth about this topic? Today, we have so many so-and-sos that we can still go to, right? If there's anything that you hear said about what the Bible teaches and you don't like it, you can Google it and you can find a so-and-so that will tell you, well, that's not really what it says. So there is a way for us to take the clear authoritative teaching of Jesus and put it under the so-and-sos. We must be careful to not let so-and-sos 
silence Jesus' words. That is a very uh, possible temptation. When uh, Jesus stood in front of Pontius Pilate, he had this interesting conversation. He said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? We can stand in front of the one who has all authority, who speaks truth, who speaks clarity to us about God's will and God's ways, and we can still not hear it because we would rather hear so-and-sos. Because so-and-sos keep us in confusion, and confusion lets us lack conviction. And so there is, in a, in a sense, a real temptation for us to take the one who has authority and put him back underneath the so-and-sos. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, had a fascinating quote that I think we need to think about when we recognize Jesus has all authority to declare truth. Augustine says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, It is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You see, if if, if we take the parts of Scripture that we don't like and treat them with confusion, with so-and-sos, then we're actually our own authority. We're not letting Jesus be the one who has all authority. And so we need to pay attention to Jesus having all authority, and pay attention to the ways that we may move away from that. So Jesus has all authority to declare truth, but the second thing he wants us to see is that he has all authority to destroy evil. Jesus' teaching immediately brings resistance. There is in the synagogue a person with an unclean spirit or a person with a demon who runs into the presence of Jesus and begins to uh, basically attack his teaching by becoming a distraction, by, by becoming a disorderly presence. And so he starts having this word barrage with Jesus. Jesus' coming is an invasion. And the whole reason that, that this uh, demonic interaction comes is because Jesus' coming is an invasion into the territory of the authorities of the spiritual realm, which were these evil spirits. And so Jesus represents a threat. Now, when the Gospel of Mark talks about demons, uh, and we look at our our world today, we sometimes say, what's all this demon stuff? I don't see demons acting in the world today. Are Are there demons today, or were they just stuff that existed then, or perhaps... The demons that are in the Gospel of Mark reveal that the the Gospel of Mark isn't history, but rather it's some sort of uh, Lord of the Rings-style story that's not really meant to be read as as history. Well, we recognize as we read the Gospel of Mark that he is intending to write history. Uh, And and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the the mention of demons in the Gospel of Mark is is a witness to us that there is an unseen realm of spiritual powers that exist in the world. There are angels and there are demons. Just because we don't see the demonic activity today in the West that is recorded in the Bible is not evidence that that demonic activity didn't happen. Because we have to recognize that there are two different ways that uh, attacks can be waged. There are, are covert attacks 
and they're overt attack. We've, we've lived through hot wars, and we've lived through cold wars. Cold wars are just as much wars as hot wars, even though we don't see the bullets, right? So when we see uh, uh, the, the demonic, sometimes they attack with, with overt power, like they did in Jesus' day, but sometimes in the West, they choose to be more covert. They choose to be more hidden from view. And there's a good reason why that would make sense. Because what does a demon most want? To not, the, the demon most wants you to not believe in the spiritual power of Jesus. So a demon would want to be uh, covert in its own spiritual power. And so there, there is a, a clear rationale for why we would not see demons acting as demons in today's Western world as they do in, in the biblical times. But if you go to other cultures that are not as materialistic or uh, secular, you, you will find the kind of demonic activity that is described in the Gospel of Mark happening still today. So we need to recognize that that is a contextual issue. That being said, there are uh, uh, evidences of, of demonic that, that I think you need to be aware of, and that, that is uh, uh, another description of the demonic in Paul's uh, epistles are called elemental spirits. So in uh, Colossians 2, 20 for, uh, and 21, uh, Paul said this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch. So Paul mentions another kind of category of spiritual powers called elemental spirits. I'm not going to go through a whole what are elemental spirits, except that they are spiritual powers, but they, the way that Paul describes their functioning in the culture is to basically possess ideas, possess thoughts, possess sayings, possess mantras. So in, in the... In the uh, days of, of Colossians, it was do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Have you ever noticed how powerful ideas seem to be in our culture, how they just kind of wrap around and, and rational thought and, and, and reason and logic just kind of get blasted out, and there's just no ability to even think, but all of a sudden this is the new thought that everybody has to have. That has all the evidences, in my opinion to the activity of elemental spirits. Just these oppressive thoughts that take control of a culture. And we deal with, I think, an, the elemental spirit of, of distraction in our day. I mean, think about some of these thoughts and, and their spiritual power. What's on Facebook? Every time you have a thought in your head, well, what's on Facebook? <laughs> I, 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 am, I am depressed how often I lose a train of thought because I better check Facebook. Or Mr. Beast has a new video. You, you, you ever check out Mr. Beast? Anybody? My, my kids cannot do anything once a Mr. Beast video drops. And it's the stupidest. But uh, Mr. Beast is dropping videos about three a day, and it, it's keeping my kids fixated. Sports. Uh, there's another sports game at 2 o'clock, and then there's another sports game at 4 o'clock, and there's another sports game at 6 o'clock, and there's another sports game at 8 o'clock. Aren't you going to be at all those sports games? There's, a, there's just a mantra in our, on our world that you know, we have to be there at sports. Or, or what about this? Breaking news. How many times in your day do you get interrupted on your phone with breaking news, and it's some celebrity broke her fingernail or something like that? 
Like, what, what was that about? Breaking news. We, we are, I believe, in, a, in an age that is captive to the spirit of distraction. And you have to recognize that distraction is spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis addressed this in his uh, fa- fascinating uh, uh, book called The Screwtape Letters, where he writes in the imagination of a demon. So, so who, he, who the demon thinks is the enemy is God, and, and who he, the demon thinks is good is actually the devil. So it's, it's backwards. But he explains how the demonic would work in our culture. And he says this in one, one of his uh, chapters, uh, speaking as this demon screw tape. He says, I once had a patient, a sound atheist. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, which we know is God, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If if I had lost my mind and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested it was just about time he had some lunch. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten into him the unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books... A healthy dose of real life was enough to show him all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. You see the the demonic way of using distraction to keep us from hearing and considering the truth. So let us not be dismissive of the the description of spiritual powers. Look down at verse verse 25 in in our text. Verse 25 says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Notice again, the command is all Jesus. There is, I say to you in the name of so-and-so, or I say to you calling upon the power of such-and-such. There is none of that in Jesus. All he says is, I say, come out. And the Spirit departs immediately Because Jesus commanded. If there's any evidence that there is all authority in Jesus' word, it is that the evil spirits, who I assure you do not want to obey Jesus, cannot refuse his direct command. The spirit simply departs by Jesus' command. Jesus demonstrates that he will, in, in doing this, Mark is is trying to show us that Jesus has the authority to remove all that is evil and harmful. He has the authority to speak and expel the powers of evil in this world. Listen, Jesus is here to release the grip of elemental spirits on you. But let's go back to that discussion of, of distraction. How do we get free from those powers to distract us, to keep us from soaking in the Word, to keep us from praying, to keep us from 
truly seeing through the confusion of our age and the truth that Jesus speaks. I think there is a passage in the the Gospel of Luke which tells us exactly what the remedy is. And it is the story that we know well of of Martha and Mary. Uh, let, Let me read it to you. Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha submitted to the spirit of distraction. And the remedy to the spirit of distraction is shown to us in Mary, who simply sits and listens to what the Lord has to say. If you want to break the power of these elemental spirits, listen to Jesus' words. Give Jesus' words the opportunity to just be heard. Put your phone in another room. Turn off the TV. Sequester yourself. And let the words of Jesus just be spoken and listened. And you will find yourself set free from the spirit of distraction. You will find yourself growing in depth and intimacy and security in the one who has all authority. So we see he has authority to declare truth. We see he has authority to destroy evil. And third, in this passage, he has the authority to give life. So Jesus leaves the synagogue, and they go into uh, Peter's um, mother-in-law's house, and uh, and they start just kind of having dinner. Uh, And Peter's mother-in-law is sick, has a fever. Now, before we, we go too much further, as I, I said earlier, we would talk about how we know that we're reading a book that is just historical when we read Mark, not fantastical. And, and I think a, a, a pretty impressive piece of evidence of that is, is this little story about Peter's mother-in-law. Because in all honesty, uh, if you were writing a book of fantastic, miraculous, powerful things, who would include their mother-in-law? Right? I mean, that character never gets in the story. unless it's true, right? So here we have Peter uh, remembering, and Peter is one of the primary sources for Mark, remembering this moment of his mother-in-law being healed of a fever, which we have to admit a fever is not nearly as impressive as as some of the other miracles, but it impressed the person who saw it. It impressed Peter, and Peter made sure that it was remembered that his mother-in-law, who was suffering from a fever, was healed by Jesus. This has behind it all of the evidences of eyewitness reports. I mean, the Gospels are words written down by eyewitnesses. Does that not make your heart kind of flutter a bit? We're, We're not reading Tolkien. We are reading things that happened. How amazing these eyewitness reports. And I I also love that that Peter 
established for all preachers that you can use your family in sermon illustrations. So, so from now on, I'm just claiming Peter's authority. I'm going to tell you every embarrassing thing about my wife and kids in the weeks to come. So don't miss. So this fever that, that the mother-in-law has is an illness. And it's, it's fundamentally just something that's attacking her life. She can't live her life. She is laid up. I don't know how serious the fever is, but it's stopping her from, from her life. And it was concerning enough that the disciples said, can you help my, my mother-in-law? Which has got to be a real concern because there's not a whole lot that I would, uh, well, never mind. That, that's, a, that's a family thing. Um, anyhow, Jesus comes to the mother-in-law and again puts his hand on her and raises her up and the fever leaves her. Now, I think it is, is interesting that Mark uses the word raised here. In the, in, the, in the Greek, the word that is used for raised is also the word that Mark uses to speak of resurrection. So it's possible that Mark is wanting us to see in the action of taking this woman whose, whose life is being threatened and limited by this fever and taking her out of it by raising her up into wellness and health that he wants to show a glimpse, a picture of the resurrection power that is in Jesus. Jesus is able to raise and restore this woman to life. And again, Jesus does this with no magic words, with no medicines, with no potions. The only thing that acts to heal this woman is Jesus. So the emphasis, once again, is that Jesus has all authority. I love this little story. Peter's mother-in-law is really a microcosm of what the kingdom life is. Because as soon as she is released from the powers of death, what does she begin to do? She begins to serve Jesus. I mean, this is is what happens. She's released And now she lives for him. She serves the kingdom. This is a a picture, again, of Lilo. She living out service to Jesus is evidence of what she is living in, which is the new life of Jesus, right? And I think it, it, it puts in front of us an application question. When we receive the gospel, we have received the healing of Jesus. But when we look at our life, do we show a life that is serving Jesus? Who are you serving with your life? When we live in the gospel, like Peter's mother-in-law, we will live it out. Now look at verse 34 as we get close to, uh, to to the finish. It says that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So, so G- G- Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then at the door are hundreds more people who are sick or oppressed by demons, and we are told that Jesus heals them. Now, the interesting thing that one commentator brings out is that Mark doesn't tell us all the different kinds of diseases. He just says all the things that showed up, all the demons that showed up, It didn't matter. Jesus healed them. So what the emphasis, what the communication from Mark is, 
is that Jesus has the authority to heal and cast out all diseases and all oppressors. It doesn't matter who came to the door. Jesus has the authority to heal whatever showed up. Now, when we, when we, when we see this, we recognize that Jesus is going to be the one that restores the fallenness of this world. Jesus, at, at, at Peter's mother-in-law's door, gave us a first glimpse of what we will all experience at the end of the age, which is described to us in Revelation 21.4, which is probably my favorite verse. Here it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This home in Capernaum, Jesus demonstrated that he has all the authority to make that promise of our future guaranteed. There is nothing that will come to the door of Jesus that he will not heal. There is no malady or illness that Jesus will not reverse. And there is no death that Jesus will not raise out of. That is what we are to see here. You, you, you may have the question, why not now? Why, why don't we see these kind of healings now? They would be so helpful if my family could just see the healing that is shown right here. Why not now? Friends, he does. He does still heal. There is still lots of healing happening. I, I have experiences of being in the room where where one thing was supposed to happen and the opposite happened, and the only explanation was there was healing. There was God's presence. There was God's grace. But he is not obligated to do that every time. The healings function in the gospel and function in our world today to call us to put our faith in the one who has the authority to give life. Jesus wants something more for every one of us than a one-time healing. He wants you to be healed from the sickness of sin and death. And the only way that we are healed from that is to put our faith in the one who has all authority to give life. And that is what he is demonstrating for us. These stories are an invitation to trust in the one who has authority to give you life. John 10.10 states, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority to give us the life that this world continues to take from us. The authority of Jesus is good news. His authority delivers us from error and from evil and from death. So really, the, the closing question I want to give is, how do we experience the deliverance of his authority today? How do we experience that deliverance? And Jesus gives us, in a teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, words for us to ponder. He says in, the, in chapter 7, verse 24, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. See, there are, there are two paths. There is the path that tries to center its authority in things in this world and there is the path that centers its authority in Jesus. The one who makes Jesus their final and full authority has put their house upon the rock. There are storms coming. My question to you is, have you made Jesus the authority of your life? Let's pray. 